I think it's recording. Yeah. Let me just turn on my recorder just in case this doesn't work. We can dub back it up. All right, y'all. Welcome to church history. Come on in. Come on in. Welcome to church history in an hour and a half. This is the entire 2,000 years condensed into a very brief lecture, unfortunately. So here's how it's going to work. Our three RCIA candidates. This is about you guys. So if you have any questions during the lecture, feel free to raise your hands. Everyone else will take questions at the end. Here's going to be the structure of this class. We're going to go through 12 stages of church history. We're going to divide it all up into 12. After we're done going through all 12 of those stages, then if we have time, which I think we might, I think I'm convinced enough, we're going to talk about the hot topics of church history. Things like the, the Inquisition, the Crusades, Galileo, Protestant Reformation, you name it, we can talk about it. So, sound like a plan? Can we make it happen? All right, let's hop on in real, right, right, right off to the beginning. So, number one, first stage of church history is the early church. The range of the early church is from zero or 33 or whatever, you know, from the very beginning, whenever Jesus first walked, to 313. 313, this is all AD, by the way, this is after Jesus came. 313. All right? Now, what did the early church look like? The early church was an underground church. Right, because Christianity for years was an illegal religion. Does anybody know why it was illegal? Because the Roman Empire, Caesar was considered to die. Oh, yes, that is very true. But there are other religions in the Roman Empire that was accepted. You might find that odd. Why was Christianity illegal? Well, because we shouldn't talk too much about it. We shouldn't delay. I better just spat out the information now. It was, it, was really, it was wrong for really two main reasons. Number one, it was monotheistic. So if you were a Christian, that meant that all those other pantheon of gods were not, were not applicable. They were not gods. So it was immediately a slap in the face of the Roman Empire. But kind of the way they saw early Christians and the way they saw most religions who were monotheistic, namely the Jews, kind of the way modern law enforcement sees gangs. You might know modern law enforcement sees gangs. Is it wrong to be in a gang? I mean, is it illegal? No, it is not illegal to be in a gang. But if you mess up and they find out you're in a gang, guess what? They're going to attack on more time to your sentence. It was the same thing with Christianity. Christianity was like, it was like a, a gang, like the Jesus gang. You know, they had their crosses tattooed on their wrists. They were like, you know, real bad dudes. They were like living in, you know, secret. They were like, they were the earliest gang. But the problem with this gang wasn't that they just like hung, 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 you know, hung together in the upper room and just hung out, all 12 of them. But they had the mission to go forth and evangelize. They were evangelistic, which meant that this gang wasn't just your 12 people that stayed 12 people and eventually kind of fizzled out and died. But it was a growing gang. And it kept, it kept on going, and they kept on converting more and more pagans. And so that's why Christianity was not really a favorable religion in the eyes of the Roman Empire. And because of that, a lot of the first earliest Christians were martyrs. 
This was the age of martyrs. And the greatest kind of, kind of story of these martyrs was a martyr by the name of Polycarp. That's a D. That's a P. Polycarp. Polycarp was, was the third bishop of Smyrna. So the first one was, excuse me, it was the second bishop of Smyrna. The first one was St. John the Evangelist, so the author of St. John. The second one was Polycarp, and then the third was St. Ignatius. And so basically Polycarp was a very big, was a very big player, and we have, a, we have a recording of him, his martyrdom, all the way back from the earliest ages. So that's a, one of the most important parts. One of the earliest heresies at this time was Gnosticism. Okay, whatever. Gnosticism. Whatever. Gnosticism. Okay. So Gnosticism. Gnosticism was basically a blend between Christianity and paganism. And here's the difference. Gnostics, Gnostics believe they're kind of like they're kind of like Scientologists. You'll know Scientology, you know, hey, you know, you can get you can get your first level of, of knowledge if you pay, you know, ten bucks. If you pay ten thousand, you'll get the highest level of knowledge, and then you'll be saved, and you'll get like you know the a planet Z or whatever. I don't know what the all kind of like crazy conspiracy stuff. That's all Gnosticism was. It was just early Scientology. And the fascinating part about Gnosticism is that there was no code of ethics. They were like pagans. Pagans were not an ethical people. You don't look at you don't look at the early pagans and you see uh, a Ten Commandments. You don't look at the pagans and you see a Hammurabi's code. You just look at the, all pagans were was, hey, I want something. Let me take my goat, bring it to X, Y, and Z temple, sacrifice the goat, and hope I get the fortune. That's all it was. It was just like it was just religion, except for applied to like business matters. It was not, it, and that's very much what Gnosticism was. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, and it means knowledge. And so basically, what what it believed was that if you had this secret knowledge, you had a chance of salvation. That was the earliest heresy, and that was one of the greatest, one of the most attacked heresies in, in the early church. And it was attacked namely by a guy named Irenaeus of Lyon. And he was the one who wrote that great, beautiful quote, that great, beautiful line, The glory of God is man fully alive. Because the presence of God actually impacts our lives. Gnosticism, the presence of God is kind of whatever. It's just, it just, it isn't, it doesn't transform us. But what St. Irenae says is actually it does. Whenever we worship Jesus Christ, we become more like him. And we become fully alive. And follow and become just and become right and become God-like. The other great player here in this time... So the first great player, let's, let me go on ahead and I'm going to go into the next section. Players, like principal players. Is Irenaeus. The other one was, uh, was Ignatius of Antioch. If you want to ever, if, if you want to ever look at the early references to the Eucharist as the true body and true blood of Christ, this is your man right here, Ignatius of Antioch. 
this guy has converted hundreds and I'm like sure thousands of non-denominational men and women from their, their idea of symbolic Eucharist to the Catholic Church, knowing that this is that the early church fathers that actually did actually believe that this is not just a symbol. The other guy that was very important is Origen. Origen fought Gnosticism. He fought all kinds of other heresies. And what he did was he basically was the first biblical scholar. Translating the Bible into Greek, into Hebrew, and into Latin. So that's, that's basically the early church in a nutshell. There's a lot more to this. But the most important part of the early church... And it really it was kind of a hinge between the early church and what we would call the patristic era, era is the Edict of Milan. So we got this down, right set here. I'm going to erase this. Actually, yeah. And we're gonna we are going to put down so our second phase, patristic era. And then the first thing that, major event, the first major event that marks the patristic era, Edict of Milan. Can anybody whose name is not Brittany or Briley tell me what the Edict of Milan is? John? Hey, legalized Christianity. Legalized Christianity. And in what year? 313. Ladies and gentlemen, that is one of the most important dates you will ever see in your life. The year 313, Constantine legalized Christianity. Because Constantine came over, not from, away from the dark side and into the light. So, what was so beautiful about this is finally, at all the, like, it's kind of like the early church. The early church is always made of men. So, if you think our church now has problems, you should, have, you should read some more history. It was always made of men. And so like, so like the early church, because it wasn't public, it's kind of like, not, not like this image, but it's kind of like that, it's kind of like, a, like an infected zit, all right? Just kind of like sitting in all of its pus and all of its nastiness, kind of in the catacombs. That's where a lot of this stuff was happening, in the catacombs, in the secret of, in the secret of life. There was, no, there was no public debate allowed. Well, Christian, legal, Christianity was legalized in 313. It enabled public debate and what ended up happening? They discovered there was this monster heresy out there called Arianism. Arianism. Anybody tell me what Arianism is? Very simple. Yes. It denied that Jesus was co-eternal to God. Exactly. It can be summarized in this one line. There was once a time when the sun was not. And the sun did not exist meaning that Jesus was created. Jesus was not really God. He was just kind of like a demigod, kind of like a cool dude that had superhuman powers, not God. And if that's the case, then we don't really have a real sacrifice on the cross, which means we're not really saved, and we're all doomed to hell. But then that's basically what they had to argue. Arianism, the worst heresy ever to strike the church. And to answer this, what the bishops did was they called the Council of... Nicaea. That is not how you spell Nicaea. Nicaea. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. 
The Council of Nicaea. Man, I'll tell you, whenever I, whenever I start writing on the board, I cannot spell. Like, I mean, look, Riley and Brittany took my class last year. It's like, it's like I go back to fourth grade. All right. So the Council of Nicaea, can anybody tell me what year this is? No. Good try. 325. That's 12 years after this was legalized. 12 years after this was after Christianity was legalized, they already had to fix it. It was already a mess. And so what they did was they called the Council of Nicaea and kind of brought it together. Point being is that there were heresies left and right coming out of the church at this time. And these heresies can define, be defined as Christological heresies. What, does, what do you think a Christological heresy is? Judging by the word. It's a heresy about Christ, the nature of Christ. So Arianism, Christological heresy. You'll hear it, maybe you'll hear again Nestorianism, the idea that that, that Jesus and, and, and his human nature and divine nature don't really coexist. Christological heresy. Monophysitism, the idea that the humanity of Jesus was kind of swallowed up in his divinity and it didn't actually exist. Monophysitism. All these things were Christological heresies. And, be, and to answer all these Christological heresies, four councils were called. Four councils. So Nicaea was called for Arianism, but it was kind of like a second, they kind of needed a second surgery, if you will. Uh, you know, like, you know, it's like the doctor goes in, and like, like my, so my dad had neck surgery, and the doctor went in and dug some stuff out of his neck, and then he went on, life was good, and then he realized, actually, there's still more stuff in his neck, so he had to go back and get it out. It's the same thing here. Arianism was not, did not get rooted out, so they had to call another council, the Council of Constantinople. Three eighty one. Then another heresy showed up called Nestorianism. It's basically said that, G, like he, basically Nestorianism is Jesus faking it on the cross. His divine nature is actually totally fine. Everything's everything's all good. Nestorianism, and that was that that issue was answered at the Council of Ephesus. In the year 431. Alright? And then, so let me remove the word Christological, that throw everybody off. Alright? Then the last one was Monophysitism. And that is the Council of Chalcedon. Any of my students remember when the Council of Chalcedon was? What the heck? You're paying attention by Nope. Not today. Come on. Four, four fifty-one. Oh. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> four fifty-one. Look how close this is together. I mean, this is almost a hundred years, and they had to call four major councils to give you an idea what a council is. It's all of the bishops in the area, from we're talking Constantinople all the way down to Alexandria in Egypt. Constantinople's in, in Turkey, Asia Minor, Alexandria's Egypt in Egypt. They all have to meet up there. In Asia Minor, because all these all these places are in that area. Crazy stuff. This was the age of councils, but it was also the age of what we call patristics. Let me move this podium up here so you can all see. You see? Can you guys see now? No. Hang on. We're gonna fix that problem right now. I love whiteboards. It's kind of like my favorite thing in the world, even though I can't really use them. All right. So yeah, I want everybody to be able to see what I'm saying. Okay. 
So these are the councils that were being called. But there was more done than the councils. The beauty of beating down heresies, the beauty of like really fighting them down, like you know, really like stuff them into the ground, is you develop theology. And because of that, we had lots and lots of great theologians come out of this era, which is why we call it the patristic era, the era of the church fathers. And let me give you some of these guys' names. There's different, there's different basically parts of the church. You have the Latin-speaking part, which is basically Italy this way, Germany, France, and then there's some of North Africa over. That's all Latin-speaking. Then you have the Greek-speaking part of the church. Alexandria, which is right on the, you know, the Nile, the port of the Nile from the Mediterranean, up to Constantinople, and over. Everything there is Greek. The fact of the matter is, Christianity, the theologians, were mainly Greek. They spoke a bit, they, that, was like the, that was the big thrust of Christianity at this point. And some of the, and some of the Greek fathers were men like St. John Chrysostom. Let me see, I'm the right fathers. Chrysostom. St. John Chrysostom. St. Cyril of Alexandria. St. Athanasius. These are big, these are heavy hitters. St. Athanasius fought against Arianism. St. Cyril fought against Nestorianism. And St. John Chrysostom fought against Arianism as well. He was one of the main players against that. These are all Greek-speaking men. But in the Latin West, they were fighting something else. They were fighting not a Christological heresy, but moral heresy. But moral heresies. These were these were the ideas that like give me an idea. This is like the idea of like, yeah, I can work really hard to make it into the kingdom of heaven. And then St. Augustine said, no, you can't. You can't work really hard to make it into the kingdom of heaven, because if you could, then there would be no point of Jesus dying. There's none of that. Another one was um, what was that? Donatism. The idea that, hey, only really, really, really good people can be in the church. That's it. All, the, all those other bad people cannot be in the church. That's kind of a heresy that we're fighting today, you know, with, with this, uh, with all the corruption that we see in the church. Some people want everybody out that is any, that even has a, a lick of, of, of darkness in their soul. And it doesn't work. That was her yeah, those heresies basically allowed a whole other group of church fathers to come out. The first and greatest of these church fathers was St. Augustine. This man, like, I mean, 90% of our theology to this day comes from St. Augustine. If you read the Summa Theologica by St. Thomas Aquinas, the first, the thing that he cites the most, Scripture. But the, the father that he cites the most after Scripture is St. Augustine. St. Augustine is the man. After St. Augustine, we have St. Jerome. He was one of the great kind of, he was one of the great biblical scholars for the Latin, for the Latin West. For years, the Latin West had no biblical scholars, but St. Jerome stepped up and did that. St. Ambrose, who basically converted St. Augustine, and St. Leo the Great. One of the greatest popes, probably the greatest pope since St. Peter. <coughs> that is a capital G, not a lowercase. 
Alright, so St. Leo the Great. He was instrumental in calcinum and in, in chopping down the monophysite hairs. So, like I said, we, we, don't, we don't have a whole lot more time. So, if you have any more questions about this, you just ask. Alright, that is basically the, the patristic era. Now, before I, before I go any further, lots of big stuff happened. Edicts of Milan, 313, massive. If you want if there's ever a council that you want to remember, Nicaea 325. That is the principle. In fact, y'all know how we say at the after, what is it, after the, yeah, after the homily, we stand up, let's confess our faith, we say, I believe in one God. That is what is often said, the Nicene Creed. Actually, it's not the Nicene Creed. Y'all know that? Yeah. It is the, what is it? The Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. The Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. Uh, what? The Nicene Creed was, there was a creed written in Nicaea. But it wasn't completed. Remember, there was only part of the surgery done here. It wasn't finished. So then what they did was in Constantinople, they modified it. And that's why we, that's where we say the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed at Mass every Sunday. Thank you, Nicaea and Constantinople. But we don't like to say Nicene Constantinopolitan. So we just say Nicene. Now you know. More you drop that out of the party and win some friends. Okay. <laughs> The, the, the major event that kind of busted us out of this patristic era, anybody guess what, what, what kind of ended all this? Fall of Rome. Fall of Rome. Thank you. Anybody remember whenever Rome fell? You're old enough, right? Yeah. <laughs> 476. That was out of love. What's that? Can record cast on what you're saying from there? Oh, I hope so. Maybe not. But I'm glad you, you mentioned that. I'm pretty loud. All right, recorder, you hear that? Mike is old. basically monks, Latin monks. And basically these guys were 
a group of Christians trying to live the Christian life, trying to be good men, and they kind of live in, live in community together. It's a basic definition of monk life. And what Gregory the Great did was he took monks and sent them to different parts of Europe, namely England. This is how England was evangelized. Gregory the Great sent monks up there, and the first place they landed was Canterbury, which is why he, the Archbishop of Canterbury is such a big deal, at least, at least the Diocese of Canterbury. The other thing that was very important is because Rome fell, Gregory the Great basically became the de facto emperor. So, let's move on a little bit quicker. So he does that. He puts a lot of force on monasticism. Now, let me point something out to you. The patristic era was all bishops. Everybody that I named practically, Chrysostom, Cyril, uh, excuse me, Augustine, Ambrose, all those guys were bishops. Those were the heavy hitters. Those were the big players. That all changed in the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages, bishops kind of took a step back. And who, the, the men who emerged as the heroes were the monks. And so, basically, the, the, what, what made and saved the West was a system of monks that kind of, that kind of pulled all of Christianity out of the Dark Ages. But before that happened, a man came along named Charlemagne. And Charlemagne was crowned Holy Roman Emperor, HRE, in the year 800. Holy Roman Emperor, year 800. And this is what started what the church and what people would later call Europe, what they would later call Europe, Christendom. So many words, the kingdom of Christ. Here we have Charlemagne, who wasn't the perfect guy. He was, pretty, he was a pretty tough dude. But for the most part really, really sympathetic toward the church, and he himself was, was a very good Catholic. He basically, he basically founded the whole principle of being a Christian king. A Christian king. And this, guy, yeah, this idea lasted all the way up until the Renaissance era, until the Protestant Revolt. But this is a, this is a monumental point. And what, does anybody know kind of what this era, in this area, where Charlemagne was, what we would is now called? Where it was, where Charlemagne was, France. France, thank you. Well, out of France, just a, just a hundred years later, a great monastery emerged that ultimately pulled all of Christendom, all of Europe, out of the Dark Ages. Cluny. Cluny. Founded in year 910. So we have eight, Charlemagne 800, Cluny 910. And what made Cluny so special was basically, well, there was a number of things that made Cluny special. Cluny was a massive, like a spider web of, of monasteries. And the way it worked is there was one abbey, one like king monastery, and all the rest were these things called priories, which is basically like little baby monasteries that are, like, that are attached to the abbey, which meant that for at least thousands and thousands of monks, there was one abbot, one guy who was really in charge, the abbot of Cluny. And that one abbot answered to one man, 
Anybody know who that was? Say it loud. The Pope. That's it. He didn't answer to a king. He didn't answer to anybody. That's why the bishops kind of took a step backwards. Because they were under kings. They were appointed by kings. They were ruled by kings. Everything was done basically honor the king. But in Cluny, they were independent of all that. Which is, so basically for the Pope to flex his arm, he went through Cluny. And these guys succeeded exceptionally well, not just because they were of their structure, but because they were led by a succession of abbots who were incredibly holy men. In fact, for 200 years, every abbot in Cluny was named a saint. And every abbot in Cluny was reigned 40 to 50 years. It was really amazing. Cluny's abbots were second only to the Pope in all of Christendom. And that's kind of what, what allowed and gave, the, gave all of the church a stability that it longed for, which led, leads us to our fourth stage of history. The Middle Ages. Things 
are religious. Oh my goodness, I need a spell. Religious orders. What great religious orders were formed in this area? Dominicans. The Dominicans. Jesuit. No. Franciscans. <laughs> Franciscans. Any others? Dominicans, not quite, but there's a modification of them. I think they may have added, you might be right actually there, but I was saying another one. The Cistercians. St. Bernard of Clairvaux. And so that's, that's the cool thing about these religious orders. Three great founders came out of here St. Francis. St. Dominic and St. Bernard. What's so cool about St. Bernard was that he, he founded the Cistercians, which, are like, which is called the Order of Strict Observance, to kind of counteract Cluny. Because they thought Cluny was you know, too big and pompous and everything was too fancy over there. The great irony is that St. Bernard of Clairvaux, the Abbot of Cluny at the time, was actually a very, very holy man that got the title that very few people ever get, called Peter the Venerable. So whenever we look at the Middle Ages, we're looking at it in a very unique time in history, a time where religious founders across the board were known for their incredible holiness. And it's just seen like, oh, so vividly and so beautifully. Next thing we see, too, outside of religious orders, is the emergence of a new way to govern the church called canon law. This is basically a, a development that, that was something that was very loose, something that was very difficult to, to track. But a man by the name of Gratian took all the canons, basically what I mean by canon is, a canon is a law promulgated by a council, or a law promulgated by a pope, or a law promulgated by a synod of bishops. And what Gratian did so was take all these laws, some of which looks like they were contradicting each other, and put them into a book, and basically explain them all. And so it's kind of like the, the world's first case study book from, you know, in a, in a, from a lawyer's standpoint. So Gratian revolutionized church governance in this, in this, in this kind of, in this book. It's called, his books are called Gratian's, basically, his book is called The Credence. And this book had... Full authority, full law authority. I think it was, I think he wrote it in the year 1000. This book had full law authority, or full authority of law, until the year 1917. Crazy. 117, 19, 917 years. It's a pretty good run. But not only did this happen, was this advancement made, but something else came out. The Alge. Oh. Because of the peaceful times, men could come together and talk about things that aren't as urgent. Whenever you're fed, whenever you're clothed, whenever you, and whenever you have God in your heart, you can actually talk about the finer things of life. And that's what, that's what started to emerge, theology. So because of the feeding and clothing on the peaceful times, what guys did was they came together and they formed these things called universities. Never before done before. And in these universities, different members of this, these orders worked in them. 
The first one from St. Francis was a man from St. Francis Order was a man by St. Bonaventure. From St. Thomas's Order, we're looking at St. Thomas Aquinas. And St. Bernard would never let anybody go anywhere near the university. He wasn't a big fan of them. <laughs> But this is basically, so we know St. Bonaventure, I'm not going to lie, I don't really know many of his works. But what is St. Thomas Aquinas most famous for? Summa. The Summa Theologica. The summary of theology. Basically, a binding up of everything. And so this, this, held, this held prime in place within the church up until this very day. So there's a little bit more to the, this is all like the highlights of the world. These are the, these are the shining stars. Outside of Europe at this time, something else was happening. Does anybody know? Great schism. Actually, yes, you're right. That did happen. But I don't even know how to describe it. Get into that. I mean, we could. You want to talk about the Great Schism? Anybody heard of the Great Schism? How about my catechumens? Y'all heard of the Great Schism? Is there anybody know what I'm talking about? All right. What is it? Give me some, somebody tell me the Great Schism. What's the Great Schism? Eastern, Eastern Church. The Eastern Church did what? Yes. What did they do? The Eastern Church left the Western Church. It was a schism. They broke apart. In the year 1054, at least that's what we say, the year 1054, um, the Great Schism happened. Now, we, we use the, the year 1054 as just kind of a loose time. The reality was is some papal delegate went over to Constantinople, really aggravated the, the, the patriarch. Patriarch excommunicated him, the papal delegate excommunicated him, and nobody really cared. It had no bearing on reality whatsoever. But the reason why the Great Schism is so solidified is for another reason. What else was happening outside of the West? In outside of the West, in, yeah. Anybody tell me? Not well, yes, but something, something, something. Why did they call the Crusades? Islam. Islam. The Muslims took over the Holy Land, and not only did they take over the Holy Land, they had taken over most of the Eastern Empire. So that's the beauty, that's the thing that we need to remember. So history lesson. Rome falls in 476, but the Eastern Empire, Constantinople, the, the kind of Rome of the East, they're still going strong. So they're still Romans, if you will, even though they're not technically Romans, they're Constantinopolitans, I guess you'd call them. But the Eastern Empire was under attack by the Muslims. And the Eastern Empire, in order to respond to this, called for a crusade. Now here's the problem. So basically, here's what happened. Real quick, we can we can look, I can like spend the rest of the night talking about this, but I can't. Here's what happened. So Alexis II was the was the emperor of this of the Eastern Empire. So what he needed to do was he needed to get some troops. So what do you do? 
he sent an envoy over to Rome to talk to a man named Urban II. And in the year 1095, the first crusade was called to go back and take over the Holy Land. The fact of the matter is, is people who were not Christian were holding the land that Christ once walked upon. That's a problem. And this is also their Christian brother's land. So they need to go take it back for them. So what did they do? They gathered a whole bunch of ex-barbarians. Remember, Europe was just kind of been, just been really Christianized. The last Christian nation to be converted was Norway in 950. You might have to re-Christianize it in Norway. But I mean, in 950. And the fact of the matter is, is these were very baby, baby Catholics. If you ever read like anything about Unipera I mean, you know how they make converts? They're basically like, hey, do you know uh, there's a guy named Jesus? You know, you respond, yeah. Or, or, or tell me about him. You're like, hey, I will tell you about him. Let me just baptize you first. And so, yeah, and that was, that was their RCIA. So they didn't have to go imagine that. If you just come out of coming to the church about a thousand years ago, you wouldn't have to do this. That was their RCIA. Look, you just go and, like, you know, we just we throw some water on you. You're good. You're Christian. Well, the fact of the matter is these people weren't, like, exactly, you know, like, internally, like, ready to be Christian or anything like that. But, hey, look, we take it anyway. We do the best we can. The church is a group of sinners. So what they did was they summoned all these different kings from across Europe and said, go take this land. Terrible battle strategy. You had no leading commander. The Pope didn't even travel with them. Not like the Pope really should have. But it was just a, it was a mission kind of doomed to fail. But guess what? It succeeded. They actually took the Holy Land. The reason being is as disorganized as they were, the Muslims over there were equally disorganized. Actually, they were much worse. And so they basically, with no real battle strategy, marched in, took the Holy Land, and you know what they did? They dropped their swords and went right back to Europe. <laughs> Great battle strategy, right? They didn't keep it. They didn't settle the land. They didn't stay there because here's why. A lot of these barbarians had killed a lot, a lot of people. They, they, they were murderers, they were thieves, and all this other stuff. What happens if you murder somebody? You don't make it. It's, or you go to confession and you spend like you know nine thousand years in purgatory. Because that's what they were. That's what they were teaching. And so what the Pope said was, "Hey, you want to get released from the because also they did real penance back then. It wasn't like, hey, so free your father for I've sinned. I've killed fourteen people. All right, for your penance, I want you to pray seven Hail Marys. You're going to make me have nutrition." That's not quite how they did it. It was like, look, I want you to sleep on a bed of glass for the next 25 years. I want you to like, you know, eat nothing but bread and water. Actually, that was a real fast bread and water for 20 years. And so what the Pope did was said, look, I will mix these hard penances for you if you go and fight for me in the Crusades. And so all these people did that. They got their penances wiped away, and they left. That was it. That's all they did. So because they weren't a very strong, they weren't a stronghold, and it wasn't like one major country occupied this land. It was kind of a conglomerate of, of kind of scoundrels. Long story short, the Muslims come in, Saladin comes in and beats them down, and they you know take over, and they try and do it again. The Second Crusade that fails because Frederick Barbarossa jumps into a into a river and drowns, and so that doesn't work out. And so then it all kind of like crazy stuff. So by the end of it, it never ever really worked out. But that's, that was basically the extent of the, the, the violence that happened in the Middle Ages. 
was the Crusades, basically going over to the Eastern Empire to kind of rescue them from their arch enemies. Does that make sense? Anybody have any more questions about the Crusades? Anybody? Anybody else? No, that's a very brief summary of what actually happened. But, so that's that. So, exciting stuff, beautiful time in the church, everything was amazing, except for the fact that we could never take the Holy Land, but you know, that's neither here nor there. That all ended in the year 1390, 1309, excuse me. The year 1309, something struck Europe. What? The plague. The plague. The Black Plague. And where did it strike the hardest? Wait, I heard somebody say it. Venice. Venice. Thank you. Venice, Italy, that whole area. But it started in Venice, yes. So, for this, it basically lasted. If I got my dates correct, till about 1311. The Black Plague just wrecked all of Italy, destroyed its economy, destroyed everything, and it wrecked a lot of Europe. And it really changed the spirit of the church uh, to be a more dark, somber spirit. So if we look at our liturgies, one of the things you'll see, especially way back in the day, if you look at uh, some of the old Requiem Mass vestments, so a requiem mass is a mass you save from the dead. The vestment that you wear for that is black. Well, back in the day, there was, there was so much death surrounding them that they actually, instead of like putting like a nice pious cross on the, on the vestments, they put skeletons. I know. A lot of there was just a lot of like there's kind of like a dark malaise around. In fact, to this day, if you go to Italy, if you go, there's this Franciscan church that has a basement. Uh, and there's four chapels there. Do you all know what I'm talking about? They're called, what am I talking about, Deacon Juan? I forgot what they're called, but yeah, I know that they are there. And they're, they're known as the, the bone chapels. The altar, the pews, the chandelier, all made of bones. Skulls, femurs, rib cages. It's like really, it's really eye-opening. It's like, whoa, this, this is what I'm going to be in a few years. This is nuts. I mean, it's, it's really, it's kind of a cool thing while also being incredibly creepy. But it was, it was pretty cool. But, like, that's kind of the stuff that emerged out of the Black Plague. There's just, like, kind of a darkness, a sadness, because so many people were killed. But here's what's interesting about the Black Plague. What is the Christian thing to do whenever somebody's sick or hurting or whatever? You know what you do? If somebody's sick, you go and help them. You pray for them, and you go, but you also, you know, maybe, like, help them, you know, bring them food, give them some comfort, all such stuff. Well, what happened was with the Black Plague, monasteries ended up becoming hospitals. And so all the good monks were tending to the victims of the plague, and consequentially, all the good monks died. And all the good priests died. And all the good bishops died because they were doing their job. Which meant that what was left was kind of the bottom of the pot. There's a bunch of scoundrels left of it, which really kind of can color our vision of the church from here on out. It really kind of shows how this, how the, the lack of good men has really kind of impacted the events that later came about. So in 1309, so the Black Plague hit 
you know, everything's all crazy and all this other stuff. Basically, what ended up happening was, a man by the name of Clement, a pope by the name of Clement V, was basically the pope after the Black Plague kind of ended. And what, what he found was that Rome was in shambles. It wasn't looking too pretty. And the strongest nation was what? You don't remember? France. Thank you. Excellent. The strongest nation at the time was France. And it was led by, by, uh, by another scoundrel named Philip the Fair. I think his name was maybe Philip IV or something like that. I can't remember his number at the end of him. And what he basically did was he strong-armed him into moving from Rome to Avignon. And that's whenever we enter a new age in the church, our fifth age, also known as the Babylonian captivity. That's not how you spell that. The Babylonian captivity from 1309 to 1377. Basically, put it simply, the Pope, because he had very little land and because he didn't have his own power, he didn't have his own states, he didn't have his own nation, was a puppet of the French government. And it had no strength, no spinal cord, nothing to him. And oh, really, can you distinguish it be, uh, from the actual Babylonian captivity? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. I say the Babylonian captivity, that's how I learned it in world history back whenever I was a freshman in high school. But the, actually, I didn't actually know the real Babylonian captivity was until I did seminary. Uh, the real Babylonian captivity was whenever the, the Jews basically were, so the Holy Land was founded by David, the Holy Land was founded, and David was the king, and all this other stuff. Well, eventually, the Babylonians came in after a long after, and, and, and destroyed all of the Holy Land, all of Jerusalem and everything like that, and took all the Jews, including their king, to Babylon, and basically made them live there for... I don't know, 40 or something years and kill, until the Emperor Darius allowed him to go back. Darius, right? Cyrus. Yeah. Cyrus, whatever. It's all the same. <laughs> <laughs> this is like, this is just a, a flashback to our other history class. <laughs> Cyrus? Wait, what? Cyrus the Persian? Cyrus, Cyrus the Great? Persian. Yeah, alright. Darius was the son? Or am I just, I don't know, whatever. Yeah, Darius was after Cyrus. Darius was after Cyrus. I always forget that. Okay, thank you for that. Okay, so that's so that's why we call it the Babylonian captivity. So the Pope is out of his element in France, doing absolutely nothing. Well, then all of a sudden, a little woman by the name of Saint Catherine of Siena, gets into the Pope at the time's face and says, you need to move. Go be the king that you are. Go back to Rome. And the Pope said, sure, all right, why not? So he gets in his car, he gets in his little, you know, his little carriage and you know, rides across the Alps, makes the journey, takes all of his you know, gold that, that he's used to having. He gets to Rome and it's like a disaster. The Rome, Rome is in, in a complete shambles, a mess. And to top it off, guess what? He didn't have a place to live. You know why? Here's why. The first basilica in Rome was, does anybody know? John Lyra. St. John Lyra, exactly. 
Man, you are so smart. All right, St. John Ladder. Why is it called St. John Ladder? Because the Ladder Rainy family. Because the Ladder Rainy family. We were all at that home. Oh, you all at that home. Okay, all right. Because, okay, so never mind. Okay. Because of the Laterini family. So the Laterini family, rich Roman family, decides to convert to Christianity, donates their palace to, to basically, to the Bishop of Rome. And so the Bishop of Rome does, he lives in this palace, and that's kind of his, his shtick. Like, that's his, that's his place. And so they also kind of in Rome, now it's a little bit on the outskirts, was a place called St. Peter's Basilica. Built by Constantine, it was nice and pretty, but it wasn't like, wasn't anything like the St. Peter's we know today. Whenever they leave to go to the Babylon, to go to, not Babylon, but to go to Avignon, all of the bishops who were charged with running Rome said, hey, that's an empty palace. Why don't we just go in and, you know, tend it for the Pope? We'll take care of it to make sure it doesn't fall apart. We'll be good tents. So what do they do? They stay there, and the Pope comes on in and says, Hey, I'm back! And they're like, Oh yeah, we were saving this for you. Just hang on right there. We'll make it ready for you. Just, 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 you know, just, just take a little break. So, you know, a week goes by. They don't move out. A few weeks go by. They don't move out. Years go by. They never move out. And eventually the Pope realizes, like, I cannot get these people out of here. It's kind of like Italians, you know, they're, they're, they say one thing and do another, it's just the way it is. <laughs> and so they, they basically take that, that palace, and so what does the Pope have to do? He has to move to St. Peter's. Well, that had a big impact on the Pope at the time's health. And so whenever he moved to Rome, after two months being there, he died. And so what happened? The Cardinals, most of whom were French, decided to go and elect the Pope. So they go, they hunker into the Sistine Chapel. Actually, there was probably one the Sistine Chapel back then. There wasn't a Sistine Chapel back then. They go hunker into wherever they were hunkered at and start to vote on the Pope. Well, all of a sudden, the Italians were losing their mind. They were like, ah, finally, y'all are here. We want an Italian. We want an Italian. So they start banging down on the wall, the, the, the doors, and start screaming, yelling, writing, we want an Italian, we want an Italian, we want an Italian. And what do they do? They get their Italian. They elect a man by the name of Pope Urban. Oh gosh, what's his name? Pope Urban the Seventh. I think it's over, Urban the Seventh. Oh, so let's just call it Urban the Seventh. I might be wrong there. But they elect this man. And so what do the French cardinals do? They leave. They just get the heck out of there. They're fearing for their lives, but they got their Italian weeks ago. Well, it turns out Pope Urban II and the Seventh, who they thought was going to be a fine guy, ended up being an absolute monster. This guy was a total tyrant. And he just evidently, and I don't, I don't remember the details exactly, but he just made their lives completely miserable because they were French and he was Italian. And he had a chip on his shoulder. And so what the Cardinals did was they came together and they were like, look, we were under duress. We were afraid for our lives. We thought we were going to die. That's not the real Pope. All right? It's because, yeah, let's just say, let's just say you want to be married. All right? But the problem is your, your fiancé was forced to marry you via a shotgun. Let's say you're dead, you know. Then what ends up happening is, is that no real marriage actually happens. Because it was under duress. You don't actually mean what you say. You're not free 
to marry this person. So it was a shotgun. So there you go. If you ever, if you ever want to get out of a, a marriage, just have your, your father-in-law hold up a shotgun to your, your, your husband's head or something like that. But my point being is like, you cannot say that something's a marriage if, it, if, it's, if, it's, if it's, you're forced into it. Even as a priest, if you prove that you're forced into the priesthood, then you can get laicized and basically be a regular person very, very easily. And so that's kind of the card they pulled whenever they were mentioned electing this man. And so what they did was, actually, it's not Urban. I think it's Urban V. That's what it is. So what they did is they, uh, they did something unprecedented in all of history. They elected another pope. Clement the Seventh. Is he Italian? Yes. No, he was French. He was French. So this is the French Cardinals. They needed another one. So this is the Italian. He lived in Rome. This is Clement the Seventh. This is the French guy. He lived in Avignon. And that was the start of our next era, known as the Great Western Schism. until the emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor, Emperor Sigismund I, finally came in, captured both popes, threw them in jail, and basically said, you're resigning right now, and we're going to elect a new pope. And so, actually, it wasn't both popes at the time, it was three popes at the time, because the two of them said they would resign, they elect Martin, they elect another guy, it wasn't Martin, because it was, they elect another pope, and basically, basically, None of them resigned. So then you had three popes. For seven years, you had three popes. So finally, Sigismund just came in and said, enough of this. And that, that caused, that weakened the church like it's never been weakened before in all of history. Because at that moment, what they realized, or what people believed, was that the state was more powerful and more faithful to the church than the church herself, than her own leaders. So it completely undercut the authority of the pope. And that's ultimately, I think, what laid the groundwork for what we would now call the Protestant, basically, basically the Protestant revolt. But before we get to the Protestant revolt, we there we had a hundred years until we arrived there. So 1417, up until about 1517, we're looking at something we might as well just call it the great the great the, the Renaissance. Renaissance, so we're looking at 14, 17, and 15, 17. This is really simple. I mean, the Renaissance, this is where church art flourished, as well as scriptural study and the education of the ancient languages, so Greek 
Greek is so like Greek was was read for the first time. Lee Michelangelo, Lee Dardo, Donatello, like all these, all the Ninja Turtles started to come out and, and start to develop their art. It was really beautiful. Those, those shells were really something. Uh, the and but something else happened. The Pope needed to get his power back. He needed to gain his credibility back. So what he did was he capitalized on the flourishing of art. And he himself became one of the greatest patrons of the arts. And he began to live a lavish, lavish lifestyle. And this is kind of where, this is where the popes really got bad. I mean, the, they were bad during the, great, during the Great Western Schism. But this is where you have lots and lots of popes who had had mistresses and had been, you know, had given, had multiple children and would give these children, basically name these children bishops and it would just create all kinds of headaches. It was just terrible. But the, the king and the Mac Daddy, the, the, the greatest of these popes, a man named Leo X. Oh, Leo X. What are we going to do with you? Leo X was, was, there's a book actually about Leo X. You know what it's called? An Elephant in Rome. Not because Leo was a perfectly big guy, he may have been, but because the guy actually owned an elephant that he took from Africa to Rome. This just goes to show you like, what a lavish kind of guy he was. He would ride on this elephant all around Rome to kind of show his own glory and his pop and circumstance. He, this is a, this is a legend. Man, did it happen? If it didn't, if it isn't true, it should be. But they had a dinner party, and he would host dinner parties where they would have a seven-course meal. You know those Italians, they love to eat. Yeah, they used to have these seven-course meals, and they would do it on gold plates. And they would have these parties right out, right on the bank of the Tiber. And once they were done consuming, once they cleaned their plate, they would take the gold plate, throw it into the Tiber, serve another one. Just go show it. We're on top of the world. We can do whatever we want. We're, we're above and beyond everybody else. It didn't go over so well. And that was one of the great problems with the Protestant Reformation. That's, what, that's one of the great things that led to the Protestant Revolt. So, 1517 rolls around. Protestant Revolt ends up happening. Basically, the Protestant Revolt involves uh, several characters. Anybody know the first character? Martin Luther. What did he do? What was his first act? The uh, indulgence. I mean, no, not indulgence. Ninety-five thesis. Ninety-five thesis. This when? October thirty-first. October thirty-first. When? Uh, eighteen. I mean, fifteen seventeen. Fifteen seventeen. That's why last year was the five hundredth anniversary of the Protestant Revolt. October thirty-first, fifteen seventeen. <laughs> All right. Do I want to get into that? Yes, I do. All right. So, <laughs> Protestant Revolt. Let's talk about that. What led to the Protestant Revolt? We can talk about Martin Luther. We can. Um, but, how do we approach this subject? What's better to talk about than Martin Luther, to actually be, it's better to talk about a guy like Leo X. There's a several things wrong with the church at the time, and the, the church had never, ever been able to address them. You can call the things that were wrong with the church the three bangs. The first bane of the church 
was something called absenteeism. Students of my class last year, what is absenteeism? Not being in your appointed diocese. Thank you. It's whenever you're named bishop, but you don't live in the diocese. You're basically like, you know, it'd be like naming, it's a terrible thought, but like naming Father Sibley the Bishop of Houston and saying he'd still be the, the pastor of those poor Houstonites. But like, if I say he'd like still be like the pastor of wisdom. Like, that's basically what we're looking at whenever we talk about absenteeism. I mean, you, you know, it, it, so, it, so that's the first major problem is, is priests could be named that. Anybody know the second? Well, we'll get there. Let's see, the other one expectatives. An expectative, all these have to do with bishops. And an expectative is basically I'm a corrupt bishop, I have a son, I have a lot of power. So what am I going to do? I'm going to go get buddy buddy with the Pope and say, hey, why don't you give my six-year-old the Diocese of Venice whenever he comes of age? And so basically what ends up happening is he is he's going to be, he's the heir bishop to the Diocese of Venice. I guess we'll ordain him at some point, maybe like 15 or 16 or whatever. In the meantime, me being the dad of this kid, I collect all of the tax money that comes from Venice. And so basically, it's a, like, and besides, you don't, I mean, let's be honest, you don't have a vocation to work. You don't know if this guy wants to be a priest. You don't know anything about this. You don't know where God's calling him. There's no room for the Holy Spirit. It's just, it's a terrible thing. One of the worst parts about this was pluralities. And pluralities was basically whenever the bishop could be in charge of multiple dioceses. So not just the Bishop of Lafayette, but also why don't you be charged with Bishop of Lake Charles and the Bishop of Baton Rouge and all this other stuff. I think the Bishop doesn't tell would have a meltdown. You know, I mean, that would, so you just can't effectively do it. But because the church was very money-driven, Leo X, remember, this way, these ways of doing it was very popular. And that's kind of what led to the Protestant Revolt. The Archbishop of Mainz was, he basically, he was given, he had a plurality, given the Diocese of Wittenberg, where Martin Luther was from. But in order for him to attain this diocese, he had to agree with the Pope at the time, which wasn't Leo X, it was actually Julius II. He had to agree with the Pope at the time and basically say, like, hey, listen, I, I will, in order, in order for me to get this dice, what I'm going to do is I'm going to sell your indulgences. All right? And so basically, Julius II is expecting X amount of dollars coming in from the Archbishop of Mainz as an agreement so that he can have the Diocese of Wittenberg. Business transaction, 70, wrong on 70 levels, but guess what? Welcome to the church. All right, this is, this is just what happens. So what, what, he, what, what happens is 
The Archbishop means hires a Dominican by the name of Johannes Tetzel. In Tetzel, he basically says, like, hey, look, go and, and basically sell indulgences so that we can raise some money. Now, let's talk about indulgences. Anybody know what indulgences? The removal of the temporal punishment due to sin. The removal of the temporal punishment. Now, some of the times that temporal punishment can be imposed by the penance after, you know, in confession. That's kind of how they used to do it. Remember the 20 years bread and water. So, so basically the way temporal punishment was imposed after confession was you can do one of three things. You can pray, you can fast, or you can give alms. Pray, fasting, prayer, fasting, and giving alms. The so three kind of spiritual works of mercy. The spiritual acts you can do. And so indulgences were the giving alms part of your penance. So instead of saying, yeah, go pray seven Hail Marys for somebody you love, or don't eat for the next seven days, I love you, son. Or like, you know, or like instead of fasting, you can say, yeah, give a donation of $500 to the church. In this case, the donation was give a donation of, you know, I don't know, like give a donation of $700 to St. Peter's. So the way they did it was a man by the name of Hans Tessel would go around Europe, go around Germany, and what they would do in order to sell indulgences was the preacher would come in, he would preach, hear their confessions, so he'd preach indulgences, hear their confessions, for their penance they pay him, and then they receive communion. Are, you know, their souls cleanse and they can receive communion. Well, Tetzel's preaching kind of didn't really line up to removal of temporal punishment. He kind of... In order to gain more money, kind of made a shortcut. And so what he was known for saying things like, oh, what is it? When the coin of the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory sings. Because what you can do is you can give your indulgence to people who have passed on. So, you know, and he would say things like, you know, pay $5, you'll get your grandma out of heaven, don't you? You got it. <laughs> get your grandma out of purgatory. Basically, like, you know, and he would like work these like shady deals. Martin Luther got away with it. Martin Luther was already a very troubled guy anyway. Kind of a little melodramatic. Wrote the 95 Thesis, and then everything exploded. It was a giant political storm. It was a giant mess. But at the end of the day, the reason why the church couldn't combat it was basically because of these three bands. I mean, the, the, yes, the selling indulgence was an issue, but at the end of the day, that's the one that really kind of hurt us bad. That makes sense. I mean, the whole, this, thing, this whole problem is what caused this problem. And so, and the other thing, too, is the bishop, I don't, we don't see it much these days, but the bishop is the principal teacher of the diocese. Whenever you need to learn something, when we need to, you don't need to turn to, I mean, turn, you can turn to me, but really the person that, that from the beginning of the church was the bishop. I mean, look at the patristic era, St. Augustine, St. Jerome. St. St. Ambrose, St. John Chrysostom, all these guys were bishops, except St. Jerome. But the, neither here. But most of these guys were bishops, and so they all we always they always lean toward the bishop to teach, but they weren't doing that. They're busy collecting money. And so in order to do that, in order to fix this Protestant revolt, they did something called the Counter-Reformation. Number nine. We are got ten minutes left. I think we can do it. Counter Reformation. What's the one major thing they did for the Counter Reformation? 
Hey, Councilor Trent. Councilor Trent, thank you. Counter Reformation 1545 to 1563. That's how long the Council of Trent was. Plain and simple, Council of Trent did away with the three bays. Council of Trent no longer said no longer could you sell indulgences. Students who can't say anything. Yes. It officially canonized the Bible as what the books are officially are, or restated, really. That's true. But then there's another thing that I find kind of interesting. Seminaries. Seminaries are formed out of the Council of Trent. Changed history. That's when we started educating our priests. The person who called Council of Trent was Pope Paul III. Pope Paul III had a number of illegitimate children, but hey, at least he did something right. Uh, and the opening address to the Council of Trent was delivered by a man named Cardinal Reginald Pohl. And what he said was, the reason why we're here it's because of the sins of the clergy. So very, very clear. The reason why we are here is because of the sins of the clergy. Something also happened, it actually happened a little bit before this, but a big monumental thing, a big, great religious order, one that has changed the face of the earth, sometimes for the good, sometimes for the bad. The Jesuits. <laughs> hey, I love these guys. Well, I love some of them. <laughs> The Jesuit Order. They were founded in 1534 by St. Ignatius of Loyola. These were kind of the leaders of the Counter-Reformation. Alright. Candidates? Is that clear? Does that make sense? Any questions there? Or should I just launch? Alright, so that's the Counter-Reformation, almost at number 10. After this, it was actually kind of a bright spot in the history of the church. It's actually what I call the Age of Exploration. Or you may even call it better the Age of Evangelization. So, when did Columbus sail the ocean blue? 1492. 1492. So look, kind of all this age, all this range here. Well, this is kind of where, this is where the Jesuits really took off. And so out of this, they evangelized India. At least parts of it. Who did that? Who is, the, who is the principal Indian evangelist? St. Francis Xavier. St. Francis Xavier, yes. 
Evangelize China. Anybody know the big principal Jesuit who, who did who was in China? He's not a saint because there was a few few things that may he may have done that wasn't not like bad, but it just wasn't I don't know, I don't know why he was but was it for the movie silent? No, 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 it's just Japan. Oh. Matteo Ricci. Matteo Ricci, whenever so the thing about evangelizing these uh, these countries is generally whenever you go to like Canada or you go evangelize the Indians or you go evangelize the Africans, usually they didn't have any good technology. So like, you know, they they would come and they would bring muskets. Or they'd come and they'd bring like pots to like cook stuff, or they'd come and bring what else? What's the big thing? Pots, muskets. They would show them how to like tan fur. They would do they would do a, a number of things that they just wowed, wowed the civilization. So because that's the, the main way they would evangelize is they would come and bring kind of finer technology and the civilization, ooh, this is fancy. And then they and they'd kind of listen to them and then they they baptize them and all that stuff. Well, China was hard because these people had a civilization as great, as developed, if not more developed, than the Europeans. And so they always scoffed at the white man that came over. Well, Matteo Ricci said, oh yeah, let me show you something. And so what he did was he studied and studied and studied, and he worked and worked and worked, and he ended up mastering the Chinese language and spoke it better than the Chinese themselves. To the point where he would, he was actually a member of the emperor's court in China. The issue there was he kind of like dressed like a Chinese and all this other stuff, but he was very much a Catholic priest. And allegedly he was this close to evangelizing the emperor whenever the Pope pulled the plug on the whole mission in. Yada, 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 we didn't, we, didn't, we didn't evangelize China completely. But there are a number of good Chinese Catholics that are still there. So that was, so Mateo Ricci, China, and then, you know, the Me Mexico, South America, all that. Just to give you, just to kind of give you an example, so North America, let's talk about some of them, just because they're kind of our continent. Give me some, some of the big ones. Martin de Porres. Martin de Porres was South America. South America. Oh, Unipara thank you. So California. Unipara Sara. He was he was a now saint. Anybody else? Oh yeah, the ones that got their fingers chewed. Called the North American Martyrs. So that's Canada. New York. And you're right, in New York. In fact, the only um, the only Saint Rene is a North American martyr. He died in, in New York, so it's pretty cool. Um, the other thing that's interesting about this is if you want to learn a little bit more, is this age really, and it's coming up kind of now, is where where the doctrine of slavery and how how we treat slavery developed a lot more. And it developed by, um, by the hands of a Franciscan. His last name was De Las Casas. So basically these Spaniards would go into the, the Caribbean, they'd find these indigenous people, and they would do the slavery like we talk about now. They would basically 
capture them and make them work for them. Well, that was clearly wrong, and so Velas Casas wrote to the Pope, and the Pope published this encyclical, and I cannot remember what it's called, but basically condemning the slave trade. Before slavery looked a lot different. Slavery was like it was like you're a prisoner and, and you you know we, we, you're chained up and if we let you go you'll you'll kill us all so you know we keep we're keeping you as a slave or it was like a, or it was like kind of an indentured servitude type thing like I owe you a whole bunch of money but I don't have the money so why don't I just work for you for a while so that's that's more more permittable slavery but going into a country with with perfectly with people who live innocent lives and who are who have no who are just living their lives, you can't go and, and just enslave them. And that's something that the church condemns off the bat, especially from the hands of this priest, De Las Casas. Alright. So that's called chattel slavery, by the way. So I guess that's a better way to put it, there's chattel slavery. That's basically cheap that basically making them property. And not people. It's interesting, if you read a, like, in fact, the, the big reason why, if you, if you look at, um, if you look at slavery in America, a lot of the abuses that came in slavery with America actually happened from Protestants, in English, the Englishmen's way of treating slaves. But if you look at the Catholic, at the French Catholic way of treating slaves, it's actually pretty amazing. In fact, the whole reason why there's a, uh, free people of color out of New Orleans is because of the, the French treatment of slaves. Once you're, once you're a free slave, you're equal to any white man that walked through this year in the French version of things. And it was a lot easier to become a freed slave in the, in the, the, French, the French system. And the French system's, um, the title of it is called the Code Noir, the Code for the Black. That being said, Let's move on to our last, our last two stages. The last was the loss of the papal states. So evangelization, I'll basically put that as 1563 to 1863. Loss of the papal states, this was uh, 1870 to 1963. So for centuries, I mean, like over a thousand years, the Pope had his own land, his own states, and it was basically made up of Roman, all of them, all of like the knee of Italy. If you look at Italy, it's kind of like a boot, it's kind of like a leg. It's like right kind of dead in the center. And so basically this, but um, he, there was this man named Maximilian or something like that, and he wanted to unify all of Italy. And so he does, he actually conquered the papal states. And then, you know, the, the, it's crazy because they actually called the, the First Vatican Council in the year 1869. And this, this, this military leader marched on Rome in 1870. So they actually had to stop the First Vatican Council before it ever really got off the ground. So the, the, one of the big players of that is, uh, so this is, yeah, First Vatican Council. That's kind of the, the one thing that you didn't know about that. First Vatican Council. 1869 to 1870. Now, which leads us to our final arrival. Where we are today.
Second Vatican Council. So whenever the papal states were lost, the pope was no longer a sovereign ruler. So for centuries, the pope had a papal navy, he had a papal army, he had, I don't know, what else, what else, I'm sure, like multiple papal bureaucrats, I'm sure there was even like a papal IRS, you know, all kinds of wonderful things that go with owning a country. But now that all kind of disappeared. He was just a, a resident of the Vatican City State. And so he'd be, so this basically changed the focus of the Pope from temporal matters to more, more concerned with spiritual matters. So very, like, so, so this, so ever since then, the Popes are no longer worried about importing elephants into Rome or throwing dishes, gold dishes into the Tiber. They're a lot more focused on developing and bringing about, like, kind of developing their flock. And this kind of came to a head in the, in the year 1963 with the Second Vatican Council. The man who called the Second Medical Council was Pope St. John XXIII. And he called this basically to bring the church up to speed with today. So between 1870 and 1963, a lot happened. World War I, World War II, the Holocaust, these things. And so what they had to do was they had to update, I don't want to say update, but, but, but actually like address as a whole church what all happened at the Holocaust. How do we see the Jewish people? How do we see the development of the modern world? How do we see technology kind of growing and growing and growing? How do we see this new kind of springtime of science? What is, how does all this work? And because all of the liturgy and basically everything was in Latin, and because, yeah, basically because of, that was probably one of the bigger parts. It didn't look like they were engaged with the modern world. It didn't look like the church really had a stake in the world as a whole. And so what John XXIII sought to do was kind of take the church and take a step into the modern world and say, like, hey, we're here, we're a player, and we're here to help. We're not here, we're not here to just condemn you guys. We're not here to just hide from you guys. We're here to help all of you get to help. And so within the, this council, a number of documents were written to kind of show the importance of the development of the modern world, and the importance of, of even Jewish people, and the importance of, of a lot of different things that we see. And it, in many ways, kind of showed the world, hey, we are not here to just point the finger and, and, and make fun of it. Um, that being said, also, the, the other thing, the kind of the big thing that really, that everybody talks about whenever it comes to the Second Vatican Council, was the change of liturgy. The liturgy used to be in Latin, and it used to be a lot quieter, and it used to be, um, I guess, not as, not as, uh, not a, there wasn't as much involvement with people. And so what happened was, within the Second Vatican Council, the first document that came out was a document called Sacrosanctum Concilium. 
And it said that liturgy may be translated to the vernacular. And it basically gave, gave people authority that. And that's kind of whenever, that's where we see the changes that we see today. There was also a lot of, from 1965 to 1970, they reformed the Missal to make Mass look like it does today. So it's not just a matter of, if you look at Mass back then, you look at Mass today, it looks very, very different. Um, and ever since then, we've kind of seen the church as we see it today. It's kind of hard to make a historical judgment of the church today, um, 50 years from the council. But there's a lot of bright spots and a lot of dark spots. Um, bright spots is we've had some of the coolest saints ever to come out of the church with John, John Paul II uh, and Mother Teresa. They, they are some hard-hitting people. And they are, it's really, it's really a blessing to be able to say that, that I was, I don't say, that I was alive to see a saint, John Paul II. So there's a lot of really, really neat things about this these past 50 years. Um, and it is kind of cool to be able to call a council and not have to worry about telling all the bishops that you can't appoint your, your nephews at age of six to take over a diocese. So, you know, there's something to that. And there's a lot of, you can see a development within the church and a lot more morality. Just, they weren't attacking clerics that ate on gold plates and threw them into the tiger. They weren't, they weren't attacking clerics or bishops who had multiple dioceses, there was, a, there was it's definitely like, you can kind of see the difference of approach between Trent and the council, the Second Vatican Council. So there's a lot of interesting correlations there. But that's it. I mean, that's, that's church history for you guys in a nutshell. Um, what conclusion can you draw from all this? Here's what I think. I think it's amazing the Holy Spirit is still working with us. My goodness. I mean, this is crazy. We didn't probably get to most of the juicy stuff. I mean, so it is 7.40. I think many of y'all probably want to take a break. What do y'all usually do? Do y'all usually ask questions right now? Or not? What's up? So I was thinking about the, the laws of people's states, and I'm thinking... So, did the Pope ever actually had the right to be uh, the, to rule politically? Because I remember reading from Dante that he wanted, he did not believe that. He thinks that the Pope should have the spiritual sword and the political rulers should have the political sword. Um, it depends. It depends how you look at it. Um, was he wrong to have the papal states? I don't know. Seemed to work out at the time. Um, but. Yeah, there's something to, to, to being said one or the other. Uh, real quick, is this, I know, I know there's RCA splits and like, other, how does, does this go till 8? How does this work? Normally no. there's a bathroom break halfway through. And oh, I need to call for a bag. Yo, go take a bathroom break. Everybody got it. Yeah, why don't you turn the reporter off? What's that? Turn the reporter off. Oh, yeah, we should probably do that. <laughs>